Hello and welcome to Health Econ On The Go, a podcast where we discuss everything health economics and a bit more. Today's is our second episode. We'll be discussing three peer review papers from last month, but we also have a big surprise, even though it's our only a second episode. So we're welcoming Ogun Kano to the podcast. Um, I'll let him introduce himself, but I must say I'm really, really excited, excited to have him with me on the podcast. Hi, hello, and hello for the first time to all of the audience. I'm very excited to be a part of this new project that you have started. And yeah, very much looking forward to the next episodes and some of the surprises that I think we have discussed um, offline. <laughs> so what is this all about? So yeah, just to briefly introduce myself, I'm a medical doctor. I was trained in um, Baja California, that is in Mexico, in the border with the US. And well, like a lot of people that end up doing uh, public health, I was very much um, invested and I find it quite interesting how the whole uh, health system works and how it's financed and what are the politics around it and what is the economics. So that led me ending up in LSHTM to pursue a public health master with a focus on health economics. And that's where uh, we met, which I think is quite funny because you studied in Mexico as well, but you studied in Mexico City. <laughs> yeah, and we ended up meeting in um, yeah in London, although we already had a friend in common, uh, which you did some research in Mexico City. So yeah. yeah. The, exactly. the planet aligned, but in London, which was really great surprise uh, to get to meet you. Yeah, one one of those uh, pleasant surprises I think the the world sometimes has prepared, and like all people says, right, that the public health atmosphere is quite small, even though it's a global um, task. I think everyone knows everyone some way or the other. So yeah, thank you very much for yeah. having me. Uh, it's such a pleasure, and I'm so excited for this episode and all the ones that are coming. So it'll be quite an interesting uh, conversation because we both have, although we both medical doctor from, that studied in Mexico and did our master in the same university, we've been developing in quite different areas. So I think it, that will be helping the conversation uh, to grow and, and have different um, insight into the public health and health economic world. Um, so yeah. Without further ado, let's start with our February episode. Um, because it's February, happy St. Valentine to everyone. I hope you uh, can celebrate with everyone you love. Um, okay, so as um, for most episodes, uh, we'll be discussing three pre-reviewed papers. But yeah, I'd like to introduce some surprise elements. So just before that, I wanted to touch on a letter to the editor that I read on the JAMA internal medicine paper, which I found really interesting because it touched a bit on HTA um, reviews and what are the impact, no? So they looked at why uh, if HTA um, reviews have... Uh, an impact on the availability of drugs in the other countries. Because as we discussed uh, in the last episode, uh, the US Medicare will be starting to use some kind of HTM. So does it affect? Will we have, do we have less drugs uh, when we use uh, a health technology assessment? 
based on this uh, letter to the editor and the analysis they did, which reviewed the uh, HG outcomes in six countries, Australia, Canada, England, Germany, and Switzerland, compared to drugs that had been uh, approved by the FDA. And they saw that it doesn't have a meaningful negative consequence for drug availability. They do enter the market a bit later than uh, when they were approved by the medicine regulatory body, but most drugs had a positive um, outcome. And even more, if they had, um, they proved they, had, they, were they were good for the health of the community. So it was just a quick note. And yeah. <laughs> um, and now I'll hand over to Ogun so he can go over our first paper. Uh, so what have you prepared for us, Ogun? Yeah, so there's there's one interesting article that was published in the JAMA uh, magazine that I think everyone hearing us might be aware of. They have a health policy section, and there we can find this evaluation of changes in prices and purchases following implementation of sugar sweetened beverage taxes across the U.S. I know it's quite a long title, but it's also an interesting mm -hmm. uh, article. I recommend it to everyone um, reading it. And, well... In this study, the researchers aim to understand how these taxes, these sugar, sugar uh, sweetened beverages, have affected the prices and purchasing uh, habits of sugar drinks, which are known to contributors to health issues like diabetes and obesity. So um, without diving in too much into the specifics of the methods, which I recommend everyone in the audience uh, taking some moments and minutes to to, to review it. It's, it's <laughs> Maybe what I mean, it's not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it's a comprehensive study. I think everyone will will notice that. Uh, but they use this, a, um, a retail scanner data from over 26,000 stores, including those wow. in Boulder, Philadelphia, Oakland, Seattle, and San Francisco, which are big metro areas, cities in mm -hmm. the U.S., and they analyzed data from 2012 to 2020, focusing on the okay. two years after the tax was implemented. So the meat, what did they find, right? After the taxes were put in place, the price of sugar sweetened beverages went up significantly, by an average of 33%. This price hike translated to a 1.3 cents per ounce increase with a notable 92% of the taxes passed on from distributors to consumers. But okay. the, kicker, the kicker is that as prices rose, purchases dropped. That means the total volume of the total volume, sorry, of sugar drinks sales fell by an average of 33%. This suggests there is a strong price elasticity. So everyone here in the uh, economic health economics area knows what this means of demands for these beverages. This means that consumers are quite responsive to price changes when it comes to sugary drinks. And for those wondering, well, what if just people cross the border? What if just people change the state to buy these uh, beverages? Well, they found no evidence of increased cross-border purchases. It seems that the taxes did their job without pushing sales to neighboring areas. So in terms of policy, I think this is compelling evidence that taxing sugar uh, sweetened beverages can lead to a significant reduction in their purchase. This could have major implications for public health policy, as reducing the consumption of this drink is key in a strategy in combat combating uh, diet-related diseases, which all of you know are pretty common in nowadays. 
So the author suggests that if such taxes were implemented on a national scale, the health benefits could be substantial, but as always, more information will be needed to be available in order to make this kind of conclusions. So quite a um, fun study, uh, quite interesting, the findings. And yeah, I invite everyone to read it. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, really interesting. And as you said, it's so important to understand the impact of the policy uh, that are done to make sure that it really has an impact, that people are not just buying the Coca-Cola somewhere else, no? Uh, that's quite interesting. And a big study, like they had data for, from a lot of cities and, and quite a big mm, period of time. I was wondering, um, I don't know if in the paper or somewhere else, uh, if you read about that, is there any kind of estimate on how the reduction like of those sugary beverage uh, could impact the uh, healthcare spending? So understanding how that uh, translates into even more money uh, saved. Yeah, well, there, there's two studies that are mentioned in the in the same study, one of which suggests they um, 27% reduction could be led to a more than $100,000 per 10,000 residents societal cost reduction during a 10-year period. So yeah, the, the savings could be significant over a long time span. It's not, as most health taxes, they're not, the consequences are not reflected immediately, but more mm -hmm. like in a long-term vision. So yeah, yeah savings are there. It's just about implementation and what kind of specific policies they can take in place and also consumer behavior and a lot of factors, but the potential is there. Yeah, it's great. Like it's really double saving now, earning more money through the taxes and then saving money because people get less sick. So uh, yeah, win-win situation, <laughs> I might say. Yes, okay. exactly. Well, I'll go over uh, the paper I selected. Um, so this is a bit of a different paper. It's a review and taxon taxonomy of epidemiological and macroeconomic models of COVID-19. It's uh, the work of a team of researchers from LSHTM, and the funding came mainly from the public sector and a non-profit uh, research organization. So why did I select um, this paper? Uh, because I think it's models exist, but models can only be used for certain type of to solve certain type of question. No, and if we don't know uh, what each model are good for, we cannot really use them. And, and they saw that during the COVID nineteen pandemic, uh, modeling was used in a lot of sector in the healthcare sector, but also uh, in the more economic, macroeconomic, and treasury side of the government. But then both of them were using different type of uh, model and not joining all those uh, all those outcomes together in a model, because also. Uh, an impact in the healthcare can have impact on the macroeconomic. We know if more people are sick, they will work less and it will impact the GDP. But if we have a, a lower GDP, more um, poverty, we also have a, a, an increase in uh, healthcare costs and in and disease in the population. So it's quite interesting to have a model that can uh, be fed from both of those aspects. Um, so yeah, that's why I, I went over this paper. Really interesting. Uh, the team found uh, eight, selected 80 papers um, about COVID-19 and that had the epidemiological and macroeconomic side. And from 
all those uh, four types of model, uh, in, sorry, <laughs> in those AD paper, they identify four types of models. So they classify them into four types. And in table three of the paper, if you look at the paper and you don't want to read everything, go to table three, they summarize um, the strength and limitation of each type of model. So if you have a question, you want to look at those type of model, but you don't know which one, uh, to use or why, or you're looking at one and you want to understand um, how does that model, what does that model really do, uh, look at table three of this paper and you have a, a clear understanding uh, of what it does. And then on the discussion side, it was pretty interesting that only 24% of the um, identified model were based in low and middle income country, although those countries, well, <laughs> suffered quite greatly during the pandemic. So there is a need for that kind of analysis. And also that those countries might need a different kind of model, also more uh, where the data is even more disaggregated because uh, each category can be different. There is a lot of comorbidity and so on. Then uh, they also found an evidence gap. So the use of those models to impact the, to analyze the impact of policy on equity, which is a big and important question. Uh, how does the, the, the policy we're implementing affect a different part of the population? And finally, because it's uh, a key aspect for every time of model, good data is important and it's key. You won't have a good model if you don't have uh, good data, which is true for every kind of model. So that's a very quick overview uh, of this paper. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, and I and and I think it's very interesting that before the pandemic, I think there was a lot of modeling being done, but it just mm -hmm. seems, and I, I I just feel it. I don't have any empirical evidence to support this, but it's it seems that a lot of modeling has taken off since the pandemic. In not not just um, like infectious disease modeling and these uh, models where you know. One people can infect X number of people, which in turn can infect X number of people. It's not just infectious diseases models modeling, but it's 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 a lot of more uh, broad modeling in terms of societal costs, in terms of economic yeah. costs, in terms of impact. So it's very it's very interesting. So what do you think is like the future of these uh, models in in terms of the effectiveness in capturing the long term health impacts and the society? impacts of the pandemics like the COVID-19. So one of the things that's always like, um, at least for the question on um, infectious disease, which COVID-19 is, um, there is a lack of those analyses on the long term. So that's something that we need to be looking at. And uh, the issue of good data is key is where that uh, is, is fed into the long-term modeling so it's hard to understand what will happen uh with a pandemic now there is so many different uh, actors in it that will change and we don't know a virus or the bacteria will move so a long-term projection are important but also really complicated um and that's something that those models currently are not really good at doing so that's um, a step forward and just to touch on what you were saying before that the fact that there is uh, a growth in those, those the model and the health economic model. Another paper that uh, was published, I think, last month, did review the um, how much um, papers and health economics uh, 
were discussed in the paper, and they do see that in the last few years, there's been quite a bit of a growth uh, in the interest for health economics. So clearly, yeah. Um, and then also, it's expected that we'll have other pandemics. So yeah, pretty sad. <laughs> but let's, yeah, that's a bit of a future, the conversation we need to have. Uh, and clearly on the long-term modeling, what does uh, one policy we take now have impact in a few years? So really, let's keep an eye open on those uh, aspects. Um, but yeah, yeah I'll hand over. Yeah, sense. that made perfect sense because I think more and more I started to notice that a lot of papers start to focus a lot outside of just the um, public health area and also mm-hmm. trying to impact what is the um, real um, determination that is happening in the education sector, what is happening in the industry sector, what is happening in uh, professional shifts uh, sector happening. So, yeah, it's very, it's very interesting. It's a dynamic area. And I think we are in, 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 in this precise moment that we are well positioned to try to understand and see what is these implications and really uh, interesting connections between the models and the reality. Yeah. And then just a model is a model and they yeah. Yeah, the yeah. model is <laughs> it, it will never be reality, no, but it yeah. can give a, a good model uh used for the good question will give us interesting data, but they will a have limitation which <laughs> yeah, it's not reality. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so one other article that I think was very interesting. It's called The End of an Era. It was published in the um, Health Journal Health, Health Journal of Health Policy. So this study okay. was conducted by Ricarda Milstein and pardon for my German is Jonas Skreyoff <laughs> from the University okay. of <laughs> it, They explore how high-income countries are reconsidering the payment methods for inpatient care uh, in hospitals. So let's simplify mm-hmm. it. So some of the concepts important to understand for this is that in various countries belonging to the OECD, there's a push for innovation in healthcare payment models. This focus is shifting toward prioritizing value over the value over the volume of services provided. Traditionally, hospitals have been based have been paid based on activity, particularly through diagnosis related groups, which is called DRGs in the in the article, which they are going to reimburse hospitals according to the type and quantity of the treatment given. However, as healthcare advances, there's a growing need for payment systems that incentivize quality care and cost effectiveness. Hence the name the end of an era. That's the main title <laughs> of the of the article. So to understand this, again, there's a lot of methods involved. I about everyone to dive into them. So they basically examined these reforms to DRG payment systems in 10 high-income countries. That will be Australia, Canada, specifically in the region, in the, yeah, in, the, in the area of Ontario, Denmark, France, Germany, Norway, Poland, um, England, and the United States. So they aim to identify common trends in reforms and assess their impact in healthcare delivery. So basically, some of the uh, findings can be quite uh, comprehensive as well, but again, trying to summarize them, there's four categories. Number one is moving beyond the DRGs. Firstly, countries are gradually moving away from receiving solely on traditional diagnosis-related groups, the DRGs, as their main way to pay for inpatient care. Instead, there's a shift 
toward using a combination of DRGs and global budgets. This change then aims to balance, kind of, the focus of healthcare activity and efficiency with goals like containing costs, improving care uh, quality, and better coordinating services, basically everything that you want. <laughs> Supporting uh, rural this is also very important in terms of access, um, recognizing the unique challenges rural hospitals face. Some countries have introduced a special additional payments or alternative payment systems. This ensures that rural healthcare facilities, which may not fit nearly into the DRG system, are getting the support they need to continue offering essential services in these more remote areas. Number three is embracing uh, episode-based placement, and this is one very interesting. So to encourage collaboration across different healthcare sectors and streamline patient care, several countries okay. have episode-based payments. This innovation, this approach, basically involves using a single payment to cover all services provided along a patient care pathway. It promotes a more integrated and efficient healthcare experience for the patient, which is going to be one of the main themes of the of the article, this patient-centered model. Uh, the, the last one is incentivizing cost-effective care. There's a push to deliver in less expensive settings to control healthcare uh, costs. Some countries offer financial incentives to encourage, encourage this shift, often trying it to qualify base payment adjustments to ensure that savings do not compromise care quality. So those are mm -hmm. the main, again, it's moving beyond the DRGs, supporting rural hospitals, embracing episode-based payments, and incentivizing cost-effective care outside of these big facilities without losing the quality of these high-tech facilities. These reforms mark a significant departure from solely focusing on an activity and efficiency towards a more varied approach that includes containing costs and improving quality. While the evidence of this article needs to be a more um, applied to other countries, these changes represent important strides toward value-based care in the healthcare sector. So again, as more countries start to develop the, uh, their, their new protocols and there's more evidence, I think we can make these kind of exercises more comprehensive and include, include more more uh, countries. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah, because payment, um, any way you pay for uh, your healthcare, you have some benefit, but also some, um, yeah, some issues with it. No, uh, where the the type of main the type of payment will, uh, yeah, push people to do some uh, or decrease the quality, increase the the quantity uh, of of patients. So, but yeah, really important to always be checking and reviewing what has been done. What are the issues with some. Um, and what other people are doing. Um, what uh, I don't know if the paper mentioned, but uh, do they say which category or which range was most commonly used across uh, the countries? Yeah, all the all the countries except for Australia and Austria are using total DR, DRGs um, reductions. Which again, it's 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 interesting because as as more and more the countries start to get expensive and populations start to concentrate in these settings in these big big cities. Settings outside mm -hmm. of these cities are going to need, again, for improved healthcare because this aging population that might live outside of the cities are going to increase their, their demand. But also there's this how not to reduce quality. But in terms just Australia and Austria are the ones using the total DRGs reductions. 
Okay. Oh, interesting. And do usually countries use uh, a lot of different uh, um, type of reform or some countries are only focusing in one type of reforms? Um, so Australia, Canada, Austria, and Germany, almost almost half of the of the countries are focusing just on one type of reform, which again is is understandable given that these are big reforms, probably a lot of uncertainty involving. So not all of them are are willing to take the risk of reforming and not knowing what's going to happen. Yeah, and also if you change one, a lot of things at the same time, you don't know. Um... What is doing what now? Uh, might be a bit confusing understanding the in the impact of your reform, and also yeah, yeah, uh, hard it's to right, implement. Yeah. Okay, yeah. wow, really interesting. But well, we'll let's see what happens. Uh, it's quite yeah. I think payment will always be on the move. No, hard to change, but always uh, it's, there is always be someone trying to change it because of the incentive it creates. So. I'm pretty sure soon enough we'll have another paper uh, of the same kind. <laughs> yes, and also can be can be interesting to to see what happens in outside of these high income settings because mm -hmm. populations there are quite different from middle income and low income countries. These pyramids of population are not exactly the same. Diseases sometimes are kind of um, similar. For example, we all know what is happening in Mexico that it. It is nominally a middle-income country, but in terms of diseases, it kind of behaves a, uh, as a, as a high-income country due to the proximity with the U.S. Yeah. So there is that spillover effect. And again, there's no one uh, one solution fits all um, kind no. of strategy. Everything needs to be assessed on a base-to-base -base, uh, assessment. Yeah, you, you're right. Like, uh, it, you need a specific type of almost payment for every different type of uh, healthcare system and population we have and and then the population are changing so obviously everything needs to keep changing um there is not one rule uh one to rule them all <laughs> um okay well that has been really interesting um definitely learned quite a bit uh thank you so much for going over those paper Um, before we finish, let's touch on a fun note. Um, <laughs> so we discovered and listened to a podcast uh, called Trade Offs. So if after listening to this episode, you're still hungry for more public health issues, um, go take a look at Trade Offs. Um, it's, um, it's a podcast um, created um, by Dan Gorenstein and Noe has a big team of experts which uh, they all have different experience in the healthcare sector, so it makes quite for an interesting conversation. And the uh, episode I wanted to highlight, um, put a spotlight on, it's an episode from July 2023, which is called What to Expect When Medicare and Pharma Finally Negotiate Drug, drug Price. So that touched really on what we discussed um, last uh, last episode that the fact that Medicare will start the negotiation for the drug. So if you're wondering what do the experts think about, what are the, the issue, um, the questions surrounding it, uh, please go listen to that podcast. Um, and they also have uh, insight from Steve Pearson, which is a founder and president of the Institute for Clinical and Economic Review. So 
they have some celebrities uh, joining them on the podcast. Really worth a uh, listen. Mm -hmm. Yes, and, yeah, and that's, one other that's, yeah, sorry. One other interesting aspect no, no. that I think fascinating is that just as we are speaking um, right now, these conversations between Medicare and Pharma are happening. These from mm -hmm. from the of the of the podcast and until now, they specifically mentioned that in February of 2024 is when these official uh, uh, kind of speakings are going to 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 happen. So. Basically, federal officials are going to make their opening prices offers, and then pharma are going to try to sit down and say if that is benefit to them. But the intention is to at least save 100 billion US dollars by 2031. Wow. And we could some price uh, drugs by half, specifically for those that are uh, more more used for uh, NCDs. So very interesting. Let's see what happens next month. Probably we're going to have more, more, more light of these conversations, but yeah, an interesting episode. I did not hear it uh, before the uh, before this this um, this episode. Then Matilde mentioned it to me, and I, I think this was just very timely for her to recommend it. Yeah, and also as you said, they're doing the conversation now, so uh, I'm pretty sure lots of papers, articles are gonna pop up uh, in your newsfeed wherever. Twitter, Instagram, uh, Reddit, I don't know, or a good old paper uh, that you read. So that, that will help you have like, a bit of background and uh, make sure you understand whatever is happening. So definitely, uh, yeah, I recommend listening to it. And they have amazing um, production, <laughs> which we hope to uh, to achieve uh sooner than later on this on this podcast too so yeah that's it from my side i don't know if you want to add on something good thank you very much uh, i invite everyone taking the time to hear us number one thank you very much i know it's busy life for everyone so just yeah. taking away half of your day half of the hour of your day to to hear us i i really appreciate it and uh, again if you're interested in this kind of material and you know people that might benefit from hearing this uh, it's also an encouragement for us to continue doing doing this. Uh, please share it with your friends, colleagues, your your network. Share it in your uh, profile, in your LinkedIn, in your social uh, accounts, and please give us a like whenever whatever you are hearing us. And thank you, Matilde, for the invitation. Looking forward to see sitting uh, with you soon. Yeah, we, well, again, thank you, everyone. Um, and also, if you want to join because you have a paper that's being published and you want to present it, uh, drop us a line. Uh, our email it's on the description of the, um, the podcast. So please let us know. We would be really happy uh, to host you. And yeah, Ogun, so excited for you to, to join the podcast. And uh, Let's see what happens uh, and let's see what's getting published this month so we can discuss next month. Thank you, everyone. Have a lovely day wherever you are and see you in a month. Bye.